Terry Balper and the team of the Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. In this case, from a car parked outside of a Starbucks, whose internet he is using to record the program. Of particular note, this week, the playoffs, of course. Manager Terry Francona has very clearly exhibited a willingness to employ Andrew Miller during the middle innings of this postseason. What also ought to be noted is Andrew Miller's willingness to pitch in those middle innings. How, I asked Dave Cameron, will Cleveland's use of Andrew Miller affect bullpen usage in the regular season? And also, will closers consent to pitching in the middle innings if it means they will not be accruing saves, which perhaps will affect them in contractual negotiations? I think that makes sense. May not make sense, but I think it makes sense. Moving on, we also discussed Javier Baez and his ecstatic combination of physical talent and creativity on the field. He's already provided a collection of memorable episodes from this postseason. And finally, Dave Cameron attempts to explain Clayton Kershaw to people who do not regularly watch baseball. So I was watching the game last night with my in-laws, who are not big baseball fans, and I was pointing out that like this guy is the best pitcher alive, one of the best pitchers of all time, and then like trying to explain to them, like, oh yeah, see that 94-mile-an-hour middle-middle fastball that Chris Bryant just took for strike three? I don't know why he did that either, but Kershaw did something that caused Chris Bryant to not swing at a pretty good pitch to hit. That story of dumbfounded awe and others just like it and what's to follow. What's following more immediately is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. Are you listener the person, are you sort of person whose life is beset by work and hassle? I assume you are because those two things are ubiquitous. One means by which to navigate those difficulties is to use SeatGeek. What SeatGeek does is for anyone looking for tickets, for concerts, or sporting events, or any other sort of thing for which you need admission, need to acquire admission, SeatGeek is the answer. What they do is they pull tickets available at all other sites into one place to aggregate them, thus ensuring the best selection possible. And even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is assessed a grade based on value, which allows ticket buyers, like an early 20th century general manager, to exploit inefficiencies in the market. Best of all, of course, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. They never assess fees at any point during the transaction from the beginning to the end. It is fee-less, unlike StubHub. Unlike StubHub, they never surprise you at checkout. And for during this message, listeners are invited to take advantage of a rebate, a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. You download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. That's how you spell Fangraph. Seeking will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free Seeking app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today for your nearest possible convenience. With which utterance we have reached the end of the sponsor's message and move on to a conversation. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. down to Napa Valley and go to the wineries down there and go see like the Redwoods and you know they'll they will take some time driving across the country because if they would come for a month they would drive both ways so they might only be at the house for a couple of weeks yeah 
Well, good luck to you. Thanks. Yeah. I want to ask you about Andrew Miller. Okay. He's pretty good. Yeah, he's really good. He's really good. So you you describe him in in something like the following terms, uh, the best reliever in the major leagues currently. Yes. That um, um, and and th- this is on what would you say like at a per inning basis, a per batter basis? Well, I mean, with the relievers, you're not looking at like uh, guys who are throwing five innings versus guys who are throwing one. Basically, every reliever has mostly the same role during the regular season. Uh, Miller maybe pitched a little bit more because he wasn't necessarily the designated closer the entire year, especially after he got to Cleveland. But for but you know, in general, when we're talking about relievers, we're talking about the best pitcher for getting three outs. Okay. Well, here's my, in the here's my season. right. And so one of the the sort of fascinating things uh, about this postseason, right? And I, I suppose, uh, as you mentioned, ever since Miller arriving in Cleveland, is is uh, Cleveland's and I suppose specifically Terry Francona's willingness and a bit of foreshadowing Andrew Miller's willingness to pitch in the middle innings. Correct. Yes. This is my big is deal. Yeah. Right. And typically, we do not have relievers of this stature pitching those middle innings unless it's a situation like young Mariano Rivera where um, he was he was playing f- for the Yankees who had John Wetland already. Yeah. Or, or maybe like um, – I feel like maybe when Jonathan Papelbon first uh, arrived in Boston, there was uh, maybe Keith Folk or someone was already there. Yeah, that's correct. Right. And so this actually turns out to be – an advantage for managers, right? Because they are, whether they want to or not, and in some cases I think that they're actually tricked into using the best reliever in the situation that most merits it. Yeah, I mean, there was even talk, I think, last year or the year before, like maybe the A's acquired, was it Jim Johnson or Ryan Madsen? I think it was the Ryan Madsen signing, uh, so that they could keep Sean Doolittle in middle relief, and like there was some thought of like maybe the A's are trying to keep Sean Doolittle's price down by not letting him rack up saves, so they went and acquired a worse relief pitcher to pitch the ninth inning in order to, uh, you know, kind of constrain their costs in the bullpen. And this has been the popular idea, not necessarily that the A's did this, but like the concept that you're better off having a worse pitcher pitching the ninth inning so that your best pitcher can pitch the seventh, eighth, whenever, uh, he'll cost less because he won't crack, rack up so many saves, and then you're free to use them in, in matchup situations earlier in the game, and this is kind of how baseball's operated. It's like, let's get good, but not crazy, amazing relief pitchers to pitch the closer role, and then we can use our best guy uh, in a more strategically advantageous way, but now teams are like, let's get rid of that farce. Let's just get great relievers and use them as well as possible, at least in October. So this is what my question concerning Andrew Miller is, right? We talk about the team's willingness to use him in a certain place. I suppose they're also – I mean one of the one of the advantageous aspects of this for Cleveland is that Andrew Miller himself is also willing to pitch those middle innings. And you could argue at least by the way that um, salaries have been oriented previous to this year um, is that there is some advantage for a pitcher to rack up saves, as you're noting. Um, and I'm wondering, essentially, is Andrew Miller, is he creating a, a financial problem for himself because he's because of his, his willingness to adapt to this role? No, I think what we've seen in baseball is a shift in 
kind of front office evaluations that players now are recognizing. So uh, Ken Rosenthal actually did a really good piece uh, last night on Kenley Jansen and Kenley Jansen's usage, who's been, you know, he was brought in in the seventh inning in the division series, um, and, and kind of how Dave Roberts prepped him for a different role in the postseason throughout the regular season, using him for some four and five out saves just to get him used to coming into the eighth inning. Uh, and, and I think part of Rosenthal's column is he recounts a discussion that A.J. Ellis had with Jansen at one point when Jansen, uh, the team would take a, you know, with a three-run lead, they'd get, they'd get some add-on runs. Jansen wouldn't get a save opportunity, and everyone would, like, make fun of him for getting mad because he didn't get the pitch. And they're like, hey, we're winning. And Jansen's point was, look, you know, saves are how I'm going to go make my money in free agency. And there's an interesting comment in Rosenthal's column where, uh, according to Ellis, Ellis told Jansen, teams don't pay for saves anymore, teams pay for dominance. And I think that's true. I think that we have shifted away from a model where the general managers in baseball uh, are going to look at a guy with 40 saves and a you know average strikeout rate and say, oh, that guy's really good, I should pay more for that guy. Or look at a guy who was, you know, uh, one of the best relievers in baseball, like say Wade Davis before Greg Holland got hurt, and be like, well, I don't know if he can pitch the ninth inning. I think that idea has gone away for the most part, and players are now starting to recognize that no matter where you're used, teams are going to look at your velocity, your spin rate, your strikeout rate, contact rate. Like These are the things that they're using to measure talent now, not saves in the ERA. Now, you're saying that this is what uh, front offices will look at. What will arbitrators look at? And to what degree will teams... I mean, because teams and probably players too, right? They use disingenuous arguments during arbitration all the time. They use the sort of arguments they know will have sway, not the ones that are actually grounded in reality. Do you think that maybe arbitration will be slower to catch up to these sorts of salaries? Would be slower than the front offices will be. Yeah, absolutely. So the arbiters who decide, you know, arbitration salaries—they're not baseball experts. They're not. Uh, they're not even really judging the merits of the player based on how good he is. They're essentially evaluating the quality of the argument that lawyers put forward uh, in an arbitration case. They're judges. That's that's their profession. This is what they do. Um, and they're just looking to see who made the better argument, essentially the team or the player's representative. Um, and so what we see is that arbiters uh, have a limited use of statistics that are allowed to even accept, uh, and teams have, with a limited amount of time, or teams and player agencies, have a limited amount of time, so they can't spend, you know, of their 90 minutes, 30 of them explaining what leverage index is, or explaining what win probability added is, uh, or, you know, how a certain situation in the sixth inning was more important than another situation in the ninth inning. So they kind of have to rely on a basic structure. So arbitration is always going to lag. It would take some action from the Major League Baseball and the Players Association agreeing to change the arbitration process or change either the people who are in charge of deciding the arbitration awards or the stats that could be introduced and kind of the reference material that the arbiters were given. I don't think that either side is all that concerned at the moment. Like, this could be an issue down the line maybe, but right now I think the Players Association is much more concerned with what players get in free agency. And mm-hmm. I think what we're going to see in free agency is Kenley Jansen and Aroldis Chapman are going to blow away what any other reliever has ever gotten as a free agent. And we're going to see teams, I mean, we've already seen the reliever prices skyrocket last winter. We're going to see that increase again this winter, I think. Do you think that, it, that well, the, the way in which relievers are compensated, will it be linear? Or do you think that there will be a, a huge emphasis on those uh, on the top relievers, like you said, I mean, certainly Jansen and, and Chapman this year, um, will they receive a sort of uh, an inordinately 
high uh, salary just based off of the the ability to, their ability to dominate in the middle of a game. Or yeah, game. So, so I don't think we're just going to see uh, oh you know Errol Chapman's ten percent better than you know a good good middle reliever, so he's going to get ten percent more money. I think we're absolutely going to see teams, especially teams on the kind of the bubble of winning now, look at how an Andrew Miller was used and maybe go to a guy like Kenley Jansen and say look. You pitched a certain way in October. We will give you $20 million more if you agree to pitch like that for us, you know, mm-hmm. every October as well. Uh, and, and kind of understand, like, you're not just going to be a ninth inning guy. We might use something like that in the regular season too. I think you're going to see teams be very aggressive in identifying, well, I mean, Chapman and Jansen are obviously the big two, but I think we're going to see a, a clear top tier, you know, $20 million a year type reliever for these guys who are basically automatic outs. Right now, do you do you expect Andrew Miller, who was signed through 2018, it looks like? Yeah. Uh, do you expect him to uh, pitch in this sort of role next year too, and yeah. in, in the years that follow? So I think that's one of the interesting things is the Indians have Cody Allen, so they can basically say, "Look, we don't need you to pitch the ninth inning, and you're amazing in this role. You're already being well compensated, not not as well compensated as he should be. I mean, Andrew Miller is now a huge bargain, uh, but I think." Miller will probably say, look, I understand that uh, the market will pay me regardless of whether I get saves or not. So as long as I stay healthy, I'm going to get a huge paycheck in two years and he'll agree to be used in a way that doesn't injure him. I mean, that's going to be the big consideration, right? It's like these guys who are doing this in the postseason, they can't do this in the regular season all year long. It's impossible impossible to manage their workloads uh, if you're bringing them in in the fourth, fifth inning, warming them up constantly. There is a good reason for regular season bullpen usage in terms of keeping a player healthy. So Miller's not going to agree to throw 120 innings for the Indians, but I don't think he's going to say, look, I'm the best reliever in baseball. I have to pitch the ninth inning, especially because Cody Allen's pretty good too. Well, if what what is the difference in terms of wins for a team when, when with a, I mean, we've talked about, um, certainly talked about lineup optimization, right? Yeah. And, and, and ultimately that seems to have more of a symbolic quality to it. Um, than a, than a real one. I, I mean, if you take like the least optimized and the most optimized um, lineups, I think there's a difference of there's certainly a run difference over the course of 162 games. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's more of a it's more of a symbolic th- thing, right? Where it's essentially the the manager or the team with an optimized lineup broadcasts its awareness of that, and then vice versa. You know, and then the opposite for t- for a team that sends out a less than ideal. Uh, lineup. What what is the uh, what is the ultimate difference if you if you have a like a perfectly optimized bullpen as opposed to one that maybe uh, confined more to to traditional roles? When I say traditional roles, I guess I just mean like the mid eighties, right? Yeah, because right. The, the most recent thirty year tradition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we know, to be sure, because we don't necessarily uh, know what pitchers could hold up under the regular season in this current day and age with, with this velocity and kind of this high leverage situation. Um, but I think it's probably similar to batting order, where you'd say over the regular season you're looking at like five or ten runs or something, so maybe you get an extra win if you, you know, maximize your bullpen. So I think we are going to see this be mostly a September-October phenomenon, where teams are going to say, look, during April through August – we're going to run things kind of standard, and we're going to try and keep everybody healthy. We're going to try and manage everybody's workloads. We're going to like let you know what your role is so you know when to warm up so you're not constantly warming up and then sitting down and not getting used. Um, and then once the games really start to matter and the championship leverage index really starts to spike – we're going to throw that out the window. We don't care about a workload as much. We're going to try and win games. And I think, you know, that's one of the things we've seen is like there's a big, uh, 
you know, kind of emphasis on platoon splits in the postseason. And, and these things that aren't a huge deal over 162 games can make all the difference in the world over one game. And one game can make all the difference between going home and winning the World Series. And so um, I think what we're going to see is kind of the sustained traditional bullpen role because there's not a huge incentive to do this over 162 games and 75 innings or whatever a relief pitcher can give you. But once you get into September and October and the games are critical, I think those roles are going to start to fade away more than they have. Right. Yeah. And that was going to be my next question for you is this, this one of roles, right? Because when you're assigned a particular inning, uh, there is a certain degree, or when a, when a pitcher is, I'm sure there's a certain degree of comfort in that. But when it's a, when it's maybe more closely tied to handedness or even or even sort of more abstract for a for a player on the field when it's tied to something like leverage index, then that then there is less certainty there. So what I hear you saying though is that maybe those what we consider those traditional roles or the roles from the last thirty years they might remain pretty much intact over the first five months of the season, and then you see then you see a bit of a of a shift to a more aggressive, more optimized bullpen usage. Yeah, I mean, I do think we are going to see a shift away from the rigged 7th, 8th, ninth kind of system, even in the regular season, but I think it's going to be much more gradual uh, mm-hmm. and in significantly less extreme. We're not going to see Andrew Miller entering the fifth inning of regular season games all that often next year. It's not going to be a way the Indians use Andrew Miller in the regular season. They might say, okay, sometimes you're going to pitch the seventh, sometimes you're going to pitch the eighth. You're not necessarily tied into a specific inning, um, but I don't think we're going to see um, a dramatic, you know, there's no more closers, the closer's dead. Like, that's not going to exist. Teams are still going to want to have, you're my ninth inning guy, you warm up when we have a three-run lead. Like, that kind of uh, systematic bullpen role over six months has its uses in terms of not getting guys warmed up too often. I think one of the downsides of this kind of closer by committee approach is you really can, you know, wear out your pitchers warming guys up three, four times, not using them. All of a sudden they're not available for a few days and you didn't put them in the game where if you you kind of know like, Hey, look, if I'm up by three, you can just get yourself up automatically wrote. Uh, You kind of have this understanding of how this works. Then all of a sudden um, you're, you're going to be able to manage your workloads better over the course of six months. Uh, we, I want to ask you, uh, would move from the baseball's best relief pitcher to its best, uh, just overall pitcher, Clayton Kershaw, who, uh, produced a pretty excellent start. With seven innings, was it, against uh, the Cubs Correct. on Sunday night? Um, and August Fagerstrom wrote about it, uh, for the site today and noted, uh, so, some oddities about it, some, some, some oddities which were odd for Kershaw in that particular game, and then some some oddities about Kershaw in general. Uh, one of them is he f- he ha- has recorded the largest split. Um, his fastball usage is very strange, or maybe not strange at all. He he throws it, I think it's something like uh, over 70% of the time on first pitches, and then less than 40% of the time in every other count. Yeah, he's, he starts off with fastballs and then kills you with off-speed stuff. Yeah, and then, but what's weird is, I mean, uh, last night against the Cubs, he threw a preponderance. I think it was one of the highest fastball rates he's had all season because he wasn't feeling particularly comfortable with his curve. Yeah. And he still dominated the Cubs, who are a good hitting team. Yeah. And uh, Fagerstrom cited uh, another, um, another piece about Kershaw. I think it was by Sam Miller. Um, looking at just Kershaw's fastballs in general, that even when he throws the middle-middle, they're somehow still unhittable. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things. So I was watching the game last night with my in-laws, who are not big baseball fans. And I was pointing out that, like, this guy is the best pitcher alive, one of the best pitchers of all time. And then, like, trying to explain to them, like, oh, yeah, see that 94-mile-an-hour middle-middle fastball that Chris Bryant just took for strike three? I don't know why he did that either, but Kershaw did something that caused Chris Bryant to not swing at a pretty good pitch to hit, and he does this regularly, and and I think there's um, unquestionably some kind of deception in Kershaw's delivery that fools hitters in a way that his raw stuff or his pitch types or his usage don't account for, because Kershaw's stuff is terrific, but there's a lot of guys who throw 95 mile an hour fastballs from the left side with a good breaking ball, uh... And I think if we looked at Jess Kershaw's repertoire, and we'd say, okay, this is, you know, a very good pitcher. But we wouldn't say, you know, this is peak Pedro Martinez territory. And so I think there's something that Kershaw is doing. Uh, and I don't know what it is, because I've never faced him, and I hope I never face him, because that would be scary. Uh, mm-hmm. no, what are you doing facing him? Are you yeah. in the majors all of a sudden? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind facing him as long as I, you know, he wasn't going to throw a ball at me. I wouldn't, like, if I was standing three feet away from him, and we were just, like, having a fun conversation, he seems like a nice yeah. guy. I would face him in that situation. I think he also would just throw you three fastballs down the middle because it seems to be his M.O. Yeah, he'd just be like, here you go, you can't hit this. I don't think you have to worry about it too much. But the, um, so it's interesting because uh, some months ago, maybe two of them, say two months ago, a writer for Fangraphs.com wrote a piece about Tyler Anderson, okay. who was a, a left-hander for the Rockies, who had a decent season f- for that team. Yeah. Um, and I think w- part of it was that Anderson had at some level adopted the mechanics of Kershaw, in particular that sort of um, uh, that sort of stop start motion he has at the beginning, where he he kicks his uh, he brings his leg up and then he drops it down almost entirely and then he sort of lurches forward. Right. I mean, is that is this the the thing? Is this the difference between Kershaw and everyone else? Uh, I would say it's unlikely because a simple mechanical thing like that could be copied too easily or figured out a little too easily. Uh, I don't think, I'm guessing it's not as simple as like one thing. I'm guessing Kershaw has, you know, uh, top of the scale command. He can put the pitches wherever he wants. Uh, But I think there's probably also like multiple issues with like his height and like the release angle. It's probably not just, oh, he starts and stops some. Like Hideo Nomo stopped and started up. More than anyone and like hitters figured him out. And I think Mm -hmm. if it was just a herky-jerky motion, Kershaw would not be, you know, one of the five best pitchers we've ever seen at this point. Right. Yeah. Well, I was. You said herky jerky motion. I was immediately. I immediately thought of Alex Wood. Yeah. At that point, who is also yeah. a Dodger. Yeah. But, uh, uh, or uh, you know, who's the uh, Cardinals reliever a few years back? Jonathan Broxton. Oh, uh, yeah. I think also had a very unusual uh, movement, but Jonathan Broxton, you know, a fine relief pitcher, but not. One of the best of all time. I mean, I think, like, deception in your motion can only take you so far. Uh, Kershaw clearly doing other things pretty well. Right, yeah. Well, that was you – know, now, do you have a sense, in light of all of this, in light of yeah. how many strikes Kershaw was throwing, in light of how many fastballs he was throwing, in light of how many fastballs he was throwing four strikes on the first pitch, do you have any explanation for Wilson Contreras's uh, strategy during, I guess it was his first or second plate appearance of the game. Yeah. I believe that's, appeared... uh, his strategy was outright surrender. <laughs> <laughs> it would be the same strategy I would employ if I had to face Clayton Kershaw. Let's just get this over with. Well, that's what I was thinking. It's like, because everyone, uh, you know, we have seasons worth of a sample now where batters go up to the plate 
fully with the intention of getting on base and ideally hitting the ball, right? Yeah. Um, and it does not work very well. No. So I thought maybe Wilson Contreras was uh, was attempting to you know mine an improbable an improbable solution to this problem. I mean, I think whenever you see at a bat like that where a guy just never swings, most likely he went up thinking, okay, I'm going to try and work the count. I want to see what he has. I don't want to swing in an early pitch. And then he fell behind. And then, like, on the 0-1 pitch, he's like, ah, you know, I'll swing if it's in a certain area or if it's what I'm looking for. Maybe he was guessing breaking ball and he didn't get it. And then it's 0-2, and he's like, okay, now I have to protect, and then he just got fooled. Like, it's unlikely that he went up there and said, I'm actually not going to swing this hole at that. Uh, he just had, like, three different thought processes that all resulted in him just staring at pitches down the middle. So the first hit off of Kershaw, and one of the few hits off of Kershaw, came courtesy Javier Baez. Yeah, I've heard a little bit about him this postseason. Yeah, he's done a lot of uh, a lot of very cool things, and getting this getting this hit off Kershaw was one of them. I don't know if you remember exactly, but uh, it was, I believe, it was off a curveball. Yeah. And now, the, obviously, with Baez comes um, information about his past, his development as a prospect, his you know. Um, below average contact skills, and uh, but then of course more recently he seems to have uh, progressed in some of these areas, and he's also done a, a number of other things to provide value to his club. I wonder to you if it was, um, if it was somehow exemplary of his development as a hitter, or um, or not helpful at all. The way he got that hit off of Kershaw, which was. He was fooled, but he also did keep his hands back and right. was eventually able to use his his physical skills, uh, which are pretty considerable, just to to uh, loft the ball into the outfield for a base hit. Yeah, I mean that was one of those, especially on the slow mo replay, where you could really see like this. He was fooled coming out of his hand. This was not. He did not pick up the ball. You know, early on, he was thinking fastball, and then he put his foot down and said, oh, I'm going to be really early. And you can see him, like, literally hold his hands back in the zone long enough to, you know, wait for the curveball to get into the zone and slap it back up the middle for a base hit. That was, like, one of maybe the most obvious examples we've seen of, like, a hitter adjustment in real time during an at-bat. Um, and you don't see those for all that frequently, to be honest. It seems like a lot of hitters in baseball um, kind of go up there hunting, right? Like, I'm looking for a fastball in this spot, and I'm going to swing. Like, I thought this pitch, and if it's not a fastball in that spot, they swing through it because that's not what they were looking for. Um, but Baez, you know, read the ball coming out of his hand really, really well, uh, especially for a guy who we don't necessarily think of as, like, a selective hitter. Like, Javier Baez never walks. Uh, and so for him to be able to kind of react in real time shows there's, like, some significant physical gifts here uh, that a lot of players would love to have, uh, whether Baez can turn those significant physical gifts into being the kind of player that his his kind of tools suggest he could be remains to be seen. Uh, but clearly this is one of the reasons why people talk about Javier Baez's upside as one of the best players in baseball, because if you can do that and you can also do all the things he does in the field and on the bases and, you know, kind of be the all around player, you know, obviously has a ton of power. He absolutely crushed that ball off Kershaw. That was the last, at, the last out that Kershaw recorded. I think it was like a 90% probability of a hit and a 67% probability of a home run. And that would have given the team the lead. I mean, can you imagine the legend of Javier Baez today if the wind hadn't knocked that ball down? Well, yeah, I mean, and he's done a, a, a number of other amazing things. He, uh, some of his defensive plays, obviously, at second base. His decision not to catch uh, the sort of uh, well, it wasn't it wasn't a liner proper in, in terms of the loss. Liner. 
You're right. Yeah, it was not so high as, uh, and it was not so much hang time where the umpires were uh, likely to call it a uh, a fly ball or infield fly rule. Uh, but his decision on on the fly not to catch it and to throw over Addison Russell, who was a little bit slow. It's like, what, what's happening here? Enough, you, yeah, yeah. It was it was funny to to watch that because Addison Russell, I think, was reacting. Of course, he's done this thousands of times. You know, turned a double play, and then I think only like halfway into it did he realize that something was different about this particular <laughs> play. Um, uh, but but yeah, I mean, by yeah, by is obviously very cool. Um, uh, you mentioned, yeah, we were talking about his adjustments, his physical abilities. Um, it, it, what he's what he's exhibited now, it, obviously, it's it's been timely. What are the chances of that uh, moving on? Do you think this is in twenty seventeen and going forward? Uh, his physical abilities remaining. I don't think he's going to lose them all this winter. But translating to to success, I mean, he was actually uh, he's he, a three win player this year as a part time yeah, right. guy. I mean, I think he's already had success. Uh, I think the real question with Baez is, um, what's he going to become as a hitter, right? Because you see, like this middle infielder who's establishing himself as like maybe a guy who could be like one of the better defensive second basemen in baseball, um, with serious power. I mean, a guy hits the ball really hard has. Improved his contact rate enough to where, you know, he doesn't strike out so much that you're going to look at him like a Joey Gallo, but he's always going to swing and miss some. That's going to always be in his game. So the question is, can he get on base enough to complement the power to be a, a, you know, an above average hitter and also, a, you know, it looks like he's going to be maybe potentially an elite fielder. Uh, that would obviously be a spectacular player. Like the Cubs already kind of have that in Addison Russell where Addison Russell Maybe has a little less power than than Baez does, but is a you know an average-ish hitter who plays fantastic defense at shortstop, and is one of the reasons they're in the National League Championship Series. So if they could get Baez to kind of turn into Addison Russell and had those two as their kind of starting middle infield going forward, I think they would be very happy. Did you, did you hear this? Uh, maybe you already knew this, but I think during the broadcast yesterday they mentioned that Baez is actually uh, left-handed. So I didn't hear that. I must have been distracted by my in-laws. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fine. But this to me seems uh, because, of course, one thing he's known for, which to, you know, in my lifetime, to, so far as I know, no player has really ever been known for or developed a reputation as a great tagger. Right. Um, no, I heard. Uh, yes, yeah, so during the broadcast, they're discussing how he eats left-handed. He uses his left hand to write, um, but he, uh, for whatever reason, and you know, these things happen all the time. He uh, he plays baseball. You know, he throws right-handed and bats right-handed. Yeah, but, but I think when we see these guys who are like natural lefties or or natural righties or whatever, and they do the opposite thing, it's usually that they still throw right-handed, but they bat left-handed. So if, if Baez is a natural lefty, uh, I can understand why he'd throw right-handed. It allows him to play second base or shortstop or any position in the infield. Uh, but to not bat left-handed is unusual. Yes, that's unusual. But it also seems to me to be... Uh, um, as good a reason as any why he might possess this bizarre tagging skill because he essentially has like this overdeveloped uh, glove hand um, that he's able to use and it's actually the hand that he feels more comfortable using. Yeah. Uh, the other uh, option that we haven't discussed is he could be an alien. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe more likely he's just a like a physical outlier. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. We'll see. Like alien, I would I say mean, based yeah. on what he's done this postseason I'm not ruling out the alien theory. <clears throat> It really has been. I mean, this this is not particularly great commentary, but it's been great to watch. He he seems to 
have an endless motor. Um, and he also seems to, he, well, he has a, he's a, a, a sort of interesting combination because obviously what he was, uh, was it the bunt play? He, he stole, he stole home plate accidentally. Yeah. He wandered so, home. <laughs> <laughs> right. He got, yeah, well, he essentially was picked off third, but he, he made the choice immediately to begin running home. Yeah. Um, um, and so there you say, well, he's overeager, but then, you know, like the play, like the double play that he started where he decided not to catch the ball, that also shows some sort of keen mind, uh, to be able to make that decision, um, you know, in real time. So it, just a, a very interesting talent and one that for me at least exceeds, I mean, the, the, the athleticism had, you know, was showed up in his scattering reports and the, um, you know, the high variance skill set, the, 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 the raw power, all that showed up in his scouting reports. But I, and I suppose you'd have to watch a player for some time or in the right context to be able to reveal the sort of qualities that he's revealed, um, in these playoffs specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the fascinating things about Baez is how he's able to make the mundane interesting, right? Like a pickoff at third base or, uh, you know, a the every fly ball he's ever hit where he starts to bounce down the line or even the little liner play at second base. Like these are plays that for most players in baseball, we're just like, we just kind of watch them happen. They happen exactly as they happen for every other player in the game. They're fielded in certain ways. And they're just like, yep, that was a thing that happened. We've seen it all a thousand times before. Baez seems to maybe have some of these traits like Adrian Beltre or some of these other guys who are really just entertaining ball players, where they just do things in a different way. Like Adrian Beltre hits home runs from his knees. Nobody else does that. Adrian Beltre checks his own swing and calls down to the umpire for appeals. Like they just these things that we just expect to happen in a certain way. Uh, Baez seems to not do them in the way we expect, and that makes him endlessly fascinating. Yeah, and, and actually, I was only recently that I that I realized that Beltre did, and I think he did he more or less start that that uh, trend of pointing down to the umpire. Yeah, that was um, an Adrian Beltre special. Right, and it, but it makes sense, right? Because you're attempting to avoid the avoid having the home plate umpire call because home plate right. umpires do seem to like to call it sometimes, even if they don't have the best angle. Correct. Yeah, he basically was trying to take the home plate umpire out of the equation, and like, if there's ever check swing, I want help from the first base ump. Okay. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Uh, last thing about which I'll ask you is uh, is Cleveland and their their starter on Tuesday. Uh, I think that for that game, uh, for that game, Toronto will have Aaron Sanchez, yeah. who at points this this season looked like a Cy Young contender. Obviously, has a great arm um, and much improved this year over last year. Promising sort of person you would like to have starting for your ball club in a playoff game. Whereas Cleveland has Mike Clevenger. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Clevenger certainly still possesses promise as a prospect. He's got a good arm. He's got an above-average fastball. But, again, probably not an ideal circumstance for Cleveland. How, how do you think uh, Terry Francona uh, and the team will will manage that game? Because, obviously, they cannot rely in, on the bullpen every game, but uh, this would seem to be one where it's <laughs> That's necessary. what one would think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think, like, Clevenger's interesting. So I watched his Major League debut, and uh, – he, like, physically looks like Tim Lincecum. Like, that's just who he resembles. He's got the same hair. Um, yeah. He's got the same frame. Uh, his mechanics even remind you of Lincecum a little bit. And he's also got, like, a really good changeup. Like, I remember watching his debut, and I was like, I don't know a lot about this guy, but that's a that's an out-pitch changeup in the big leagues. And then Clevenger got 
bombed. Like, he was really bad as a big league pitcher. And I remember uh, looking at his line and being like, well, I guess there's something that he's not doing besides, uh, you know, either he's not locating or the rest of his pitches aren't very good. or some, There's some problem that Major League hitters had no problem destroying Mike Clevenger. But in watching him that one time, I had the impression that there was some physical ability in there that could lead him to potentially getting hit a lot of hitters to swing and miss at his changeup. And, you know, he had like a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. It seemed like he, like, had some Major League skills. Yeah. So... I wouldn't be shocked if the Indians think he's better than his regular season numbers suggest, uh, based on kind of like their scouting information and kind of what Clevenger can do. And I wouldn't be too shocked if this was one of those, uh, scenarios where you say like, wow, this guy stinks based on his numbers. And then all of a sudden you watch him pitch, you're like, well, maybe he doesn't stink as much as you'd think. Like there's some actual real ability here. Uh, Clevenger could also get hammered as he did throughout the regular season. Uh, but I think especially if the Indians go up like three games to nothing, they're probably going to be fine just saying, like, let's just see what happens here. If Clevenger can give us five or six innings and we can turn it over to Miller and Allen and, you know, clinch this thing in four and have a nice rest, that would be great. If we're up three games to nothing and he gets hammered and we lose 10 to 1, that's fine. We just give our bullpen the day off and we call it a rest game and we go back out there the next day. Uh, that's one of the advantages of, like, ha- taking the early 2-0 lead is they can kind of afford to just kind of take a gamble on Mike Clevenger and see what he gives them. If they were down, you know, 2-1 or 3-0, I'm guessing they wouldn't be throwing Mike Clevenger tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And with regard to Clevenger, he also has produced uh, pretty good minor league numbers as well. Yeah. I mean, so, I think he, he's a real prospect. Uh, so it's not that, a, you know, he was not some obscure guy. He's, uh, you right. know, they called him up for a reason and he has good stuff and he looks like he should be good. But then he was he was decidedly not good in the big leagues this year. Yeah. All right. Well, I believe you've uh, fulfilled your obligation here, Dave Cameron. That's great. You can uh, you can leave your car, I guess. Uh, I could, but that I wouldn't be able to get home. Oh, you're, did you park somewhere else as well? I, I'm at a Starbucks, uh, using the you're Starbucks, in a Starbucks Wi-Fi. parking lot. Yes, I'm sitting outside of Starbucks in my car using Starbucks Wi-Fi. That's the life of, of a of a baseball writer. Glamour, glamorous podcasting is uh, is what we do here at Fingers. All right, we'll stick around for a moment, but for the purposes of the program, we'll say goodbye. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.